Good morning, church. Please turn in your Bible today's scripture reading from Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is in your, your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with, the, with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness and hearts and thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving to God the Father through him. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we do think about uh, this particular time of year as uh, the calendar turns and uh, it comes with some uh, bittersweet feelings. We are saddened at the closing of a chapter in life. For some, it's been a hard chapter. For others, maybe not so hard. And we are excited about the prospect of newness, freshness, beginning again as the new year offers. And so we just thank you for uh, the way that you've put everything together. And we want to be, Lord, uh, especially mindful in how to maximize the opportunity before us to utilize these days, to take each day as a... um, an opportunity in of itself provided by you, filled with your good things. You say you work all things together for good, for those that love you and are called according to your purposes. And so we trust you and know that even the hard things, even the things that are uncomfortable or that stretch us so far that we don't think we can endure, or these things have uh, been screened by you and deemed worthy Uh, For our lives, they have been uh, considered to be important 
things that you will do and provide in our lives. And so we pray that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive all these things and know that you also will give us the strength and ability to uh, walk through them for your glory, for your name's sake, Lord, and for our continued edification, sanctification. We understand that time presses us to consider the implications of our limits and need of you. We stand uh, here at the end of this year and the beginning of a new year. There's, there's um, any number of empty practices associated with this time of year. And we pray that you will enable us to use this time for sanctifying purposes, that you will challenge and equip us to draw near to you in every aspect of our living. And I pray for every person and family that makes up this church body. Make your goodness and grace, Lord, to abound in each of our lives and in the life of this corporate body in the coming year. No matter what the circumstances may be that we encounter, we pray that you will be honored, that you will fill us, Lord, with vision and heart and give us assurances of your love and your fellowship, that you will make us joyful in you, and make us fruitful in advancing the kingdom, in advancing the gospel. Lord, as you work in each of us, make this church a powerful witness of your glory. Use us, Lord, to dramatically impact this community and even this metro area for you. Use this body of believers, Lord, to breach the darkness, uh, the hopelessness that characterizes this broken world. Give us wisdom, Lord, to pursue your plans and your purposes, no matter what is required of us, and that you will give us passion to exalt you in worship, faithfully and genuinely. And Lord, so this coming year might be the best yet for each of us in our journey with you as we look even beyond the limitations of this present world Um, with great expectations of the kingdom to come, the eternity to come in you. Lord, give us eyes now to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive all that you have for us today in and through your word. For we ask this in Christ's name, amen. If you were asked to summarize your life in words, how would you do that? What would those words be? An online magazine posed uh, this challenge, and it was based upon a challenge that was presented to Ernest Hemingway to write a six-word story, a six-word story. Get your mind around that. And uh, it uh, resulted in his statement or story, for sale, baby shoes never worn. Uh, That was an incredible uh, statement. And it goes straight to the heart of who we are. We understand it. It's powerful. The magazine website uh, reached out and asked people to summarize their life in six words or some portion of their life in using six words. And it was uh, pretty interesting. They, the responses almost crashed the website. And the responses were made into a book called Not Quite What I Was Planning. And so it's filled with six-word epithets or um, summaries, if you will. Some of those 
from funny to ironic, inspiring to even heartbreaking, such as one tooth, one cavity, life's cruel, or savior complex makes for many disappointments, or cursed with cancer, blessed with friends, this one written by a nine-year-old boy who had cancer. Or the one that uh, I particularly like, the psychic said I'd be richer. This one was only five words, one long train to darkness. Or tombstones, your tombstone won't say had health insurance. Or not a good Christian, but trying. Thought I would have more impact. So you get the idea. The object behind this challenge is to focus on what really matters. What should we be focused on? So many things clutter in. We're all familiar with this. We talk about it incessantly when it comes to this time of year, don't we? With busyness just comes crashing in. The hustle, the bustle, and all the things that are vying for time and energy from us. Thinking about the objective to capture briefly something of significance, like your life. What should that be? Can you summarize your life or this year or the coming year with a similar statement? Six words. I think an exercise like this can prove to be very helpful for us as we focus on the things that are important. It's particularly important for those of us who profess faith in Christ because we're to be on this upward trajectory headed toward conformity to Christ. And there's another six-word summary that Jesus offered in one of his parables, the parable of the talents. And you remember this when I say it. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? This is something that all of us should aspire to hear from our Heavenly Father. When this life is over, when each day is over, we should want to hear our Heavenly Father say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Today you have pleased me with your life. Jesus said that the thing that compelled him, the thing that moved him forward in ministry was to always do that which was pleasing to the Father. So how can we do this effectively? Does your life reflect this presently? Will it reflect this in the coming new year? I believe we find some helpful instructions for that here in Colossians chapter 3 that Eric just read. There are a couple of things that I want us to focus on. First of all, I think it's important for us to understand who Paul is addressing in this letter to the Colossians. It's very important. So, let's think about the people Paul's addressing here. I'll take you back to chapter 1 and verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Not just a physical structure, not just a location where a group of people call themselves a church, but he's talking about people who are in Christ. These people have been truly transformed by the gospel. Verse 4 of chapter 1 says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Verses 21 and 22 of Colossians 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body a flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Or just prior to our third chapter, if we go back into the second chapter, verses 6 through 14, listen carefully to how Paul summarizes this whole process. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, seeing to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh and by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then our verse that we just read, Verse 1 of chapter 3, if, or we might say since, then you have been raised with Christ. Paul's describing the theology of coming to Christ in the first couple of chapters. He gets to the third chapter and he starts switching to the practical. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for us to be in Christ day by day living our lives? Paul in Romans 6 verses 4 through 11 gives us even more of a description here. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And that so that we no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is who Paul's talking to. So if you're here today and you profess to believe, you have faith in Christ. In other words, you're not trusting in your own effort. You're not trusting in your own goodness, your own do it better but you are trusting in what Christ has already done for you, 
You've repented of your sin and put all your, all your hope and trust in what Christ did for you by dying on the cross and resurrecting. Then he's talking to you. He's addressing his words to us. And then he offers us some imperatives, some imperatives that I think are very poignant for us to take into the new year. Should be something that guides us each and every day of our lives as long as he leaves us in this world. Many people spend their time in this world, even as Christians, coasting toward a destination. They're coasting toward the sweet by and by, you know, getting to heaven, the gold streets and the gates of pearl and all of those, all of those things that we've conjured up in our mind, that imagery. But we fail to see that if God, when God redeems you and chooses to leave you in this world, continue to walk through this broken world, he does it with a keen purpose, with a clear purpose and strategy and desire for you. Not to coast, but to have it in gear and to be moving toward our destination. Not simply to be coasting. And hoping to get there sooner than later. So what are the imperatives that Paul is proclaiming here? First he says to seek. To seek the things that are above. In other words, search for these things. Seek to discover these things that are above. Not to be focused on the platitudes that we think about when it comes to heaven. Gold streets and massive beautiful walls and all of these characteristics that we see described in a book like Revelation, those things may or may not be a part of what heaven is. I think they're more symbolic for us in understanding that the most precious things in this world will be nothing more than building materials in the eternal kingdom. What's really glorious about the coming kingdom is being in the presence of God himself. That we will need no light, no sun, no moon, no stars, none of these things that we depend upon so much in this world. We won't need those in the world to become because we have Christ. All the things that you think are so important now will be meaningless. A distant memory in the future. What does that look like in detail? I can't tell you. But I do know that Christ is going to be the keen focus Seek the things that are above Christ. After all, aren't we in Him? Our problem is that we succumb to the allure of the things in this world too easily, right? Many of you have experienced this in your household. You've had some of those uh, sweet goodies somewhere. And I still have a problem with you, Serene, for sending those to my house. Because they sit there on the cabinet, don't they? They sit there on the, on the countertop. And every time you pass by, they're calling to you. Hey, this would be so good. I'm so good. And what you do is every time you pass by, you reach over and you take just one. It's just one. How much harm can it do, Right? But one leads into another and another and another and another. And you think you're hungry when you're really not hungry. You just like the taste. And you're just going through the motions, right? Yep. Kyle gets it. 
It's pure delight for a moment as you taste, as your taste buds savor these sweet things. But once inside the body, they work all kinds of evil. You get older, like I'm getting older, they make you feel bad. The sugar, you know, the, the sugar highs that we laugh at in our children because they get so crazy. But for an old person like me, it makes my head hurt. It's like I've been out on a drunk for a week. Just eating some chocolate fudge or something, you know, and that sugar for just a moment feels good. And then within the hour, my head starts to feel awful. And I'm thinking, why did I do that? The crash comes after the high, and then the lethargy, and the headaches. And then, if you dare to step on the scales, I have, I have to go see my doctor this week. How stupid is it to sit around and eat this stuff, knowing that you've got to go in and face the grim reaper? Because the first thing they do is what? Would you stand on those scales, please? No, I won't. I don't please to do it. You've got a record of what my weight was six months ago. I'm not getting on that scale. Now they just estimate. Yeah, put on a few, haven't you? And these things lead to generally being unhealthy, and they're unhelpful to functioning well. They don't provide nutritional value, do they? I know you keep telling yourself they do, but they don't. So to maintain a healthy approach, you really have to want to do it, right? You have to want to cut those things off, to stay away from those things, to kill those things, to mortify those things, and to eat the things that are healthy for the body. You have to demand this of yourself so that you avoid the temptations. That's the picture we have here. To set your mind on these things. To seek the things that are above, the better things. C.S. Lewis said it. You've heard the quote from The Weight of Glory. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like ignorant an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Seek the things that are above, the things that are in Christ, the fullness of who Christ is. Paul said he, he pressed far. He wanted to fellowship even in the sufferings of Christ. He saw value in that. Great value. Set your minds on the things that are above. It almost sounds like a repeat, doesn't it? But verse 1 is describing the desire to seek and discover, to find the things above, while verse 2 is describing what you do when you do find them. You set your soul, you set your compass, you set your direction according to these things. You understand them, you think on these things, you ponder, you meditate on them, and you move toward them. Calvin said, we seek those things which are above when in heart and spirit we are truly sojourners, when we understand we are only passing through this world and are not bound to it. It's not our destination. We have to preach this to ourselves. This world and its existence is not our destination. 
It's not God's will that we simply coast toward our heavenly destination. We obsess with these things in this world that drown out the implications of the gospel in our lives day by day. Paul helps us in Philippians chapter 3. Listen carefully. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I count them as worse than trash. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, Or am I already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. We get the imagery. Powerful athletes racing, competing, straining with everything that they have toward the finish line. Or that thundering racehorse moving toward the finish line with every muscle flexing, twitching, extending and contracting. Straining for that which is ahead. Pressing forward to that what lies ahead. For Christians, our goal is conformity to Christ. It's not comfort in this world. It's not even getting into heaven. It's conformity to Christ. This is what the scripture says in Romans 8, 29. God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. To be like him. To have the same image impressed upon us. Hebrews says he is the exact representation of the Father, right? The exact image of the Father. And that's his goal, will for us, to be like him. It's the greatest value. It's the most delightful of all things, to be like Christ himself. How do we do that? He says, put to death, mortify what is earthly in you. You must put these things away. How do you kill things that you like? How do you kill your appetite for those sweet nothings? It requires want to. It requires a desire. It requires that we recognize the greater benefit is elsewhere, not in what tastes good. We put on Christ. How do you avoid unbridled consumption of the unhealthy goodies? You fill yourself. You discipline your mind and your practice. You fill your stomach with healthy food so that you're not hungry. You know, you think you'll control your weight by going, you know, I just won't eat today. I'll just fast today. And the longer you go, the weaker you become, right? Your stomach is down there banging on you saying, you know what, you haven't fed me today, you haven't fed me today, I need something. And before you know it, you have just totally lost control and you're over there eating like a pig at the trough. Shoving that stuff in your mouth, right? 
Kyle knows. I bet, I bet Carrie's got pictures. <laughs> Sorry, that imagery just popped into my mind. But when you fill your stomach with the right foods, healthy foods, you feel stronger. You're not so driven by your appetites. Focus your mind on the right thoughts. I'm not hungry. Those things are not good for me. Those things are going to make me feel bad in an hour or two. They're going to rob me of energy and vitality. And so it is spiritually. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will what? He will give you the desires of your heart. Not that he's going to give you what you want, but he's going to change your wants. He's going to make you delight in him and the things that are his to give us. I will give you the desires of your heart. Galatians 5, 16 through 24 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These two things are opposed to one another. If the flesh is winning, the Spirit is losing in you. But when the Spirit is winning, the flesh is losing. That's when you're mortifying the desires of the flesh. It's when you're feeding and fueling the Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you. And you're saying, I don't do all those things. It's not an exhaustive list. It's an indicative of where we head when we give in to the flesh. And I would suggest, according to Jesus' definition, that a lot of those things are present in us as we allow the flesh to have its way. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the, spirit of the, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. So we die to self, to the fleshly desires, and we surrender to the Holy Spirit who abides in us. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power, the Spirit of God living in us, dwelling in us, abiding in us, has given us, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that through them, by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Psalm 143, 6 paints this beautiful picture of this. Listen, I spread out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. A parched land. Dry, cracked, dusty, hard barren, but you put life-giving water 
And it soaks it up quickly, does it not? It's thirsting, dying of thirst for that water that's going to change its purpose and its direction and what it produces. So what, pastor? What are you saying? I want you to hear the challenge to live for Christ in 2024. This is an opportunity. People make resolutions. They sit down and say, I'm going to lose 20 pounds. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I've done the research. Most of you will break those resolutions by February. A lot of you will break them two weeks into January. But they've, they've, they have studied this and they know that about the first Thursday of February is when the fast food receipts spike. When everybody's had enough dieting and says, I got to go through that fast food restaurant and get some of those fries and one of those cheeseburgers. And then once you do that, it's over, isn't it? Then you're just rolling down the cliff. I want you to live 2024 like you've never lived for Christ. Filled with Christ-likeness, that that's characterizing your life, knowing the fullness and the greatness and the glory of being in Christ day by day throughout this year. And that His glory might resonate through you. That others will see it and recognize Him before they recognize you. What does that look like? couple of things I'll give you just as application. One is personally cultivate and nurture a white-hot passion for Christ. You, it's not going to happen if you just put it in neutral. God hasn't promised for it just to fall out of heaven into your lap. He challenges you to be disciplined in your faith. Now, He's given you the Spirit within you to enable you to empower you to move through and to accomplish these things but you have to put it in gear you can't put it in neutral and expect to get anywhere daily time alone with him in his word in prayer I mean, these are the fundamentals of being a Christian I'm not talking about sitting down and reading a paragraph in a devotion book Okay, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if that's all that you have when it comes to nurturing your walk with Christ, you are selling him short. He's given you his word. He's written you a love letter right here. There's not a one of you, if you received a love letter from your spouse, from your your, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, or from a parent, or from one of your children or grandchildren, wouldn't, wouldn't savor that and read it over and over and over. You'd be pulling it out all the time, right? And you'd be reading. You'd be focusing in, zeroing in on those words. What does this mean? He's written you this love letter. To reveal himself. He wants you to know who he is. And he says, I've gone to great lengths to provide this for you. So we should spend time in it. 
I'm not saying you got to sit down and read the whole thing in one sitting, but sitting down and reading substantive portions of it and meditating upon those things, pondering those things, studying those things, seeking that which is above to discover, to understand, to pray, to seek His illuminating power, commit to grow. Commit to grow. Would you dare ask God to give you the strength and the desire to grow in Him? I mean, evaluate where you've been as a Christian. Is your Christian life, is it anywhere in the same zip code as it was 10 years ago? Or have you moved up? The challenge for all of us is that we need to be moving up, right? If you're still in the same zip code, hmm, we all are challenged by this. Invest yourself in making disciples. Invest yourself in making disciples. Now, this is twofold. Making a disciple means helping someone else in their faith. Making a disciple also means helping yourself in your faith. When you are engaged and invested in making disciples, you benefit from that as well as someone else may benefit. So we do this together, right? Spending time with others, encouraging and being encouraged, sharpening and being sharpened. One-on-one accountability and discipling. Participate in organic Bible studies. There's plenty of them going on in this church. And if you don't like any of the ones that are already going on, then get with three or four people and start one. Nathan would love to hear that, that you'd like to start a Bible study, three or four of you together, going to get together on a regular basis and study the Word together. Participate in church community groups. Years, over the last few years, we've heard, the number one thing we've heard from people who decide to check out of the church and go somewhere else or look for another church, they always say this one thing. Well, I just didn't feel connected to anybody. Well, you know, I I get that. If you've been here six months, you've been here a year, that's a problem that the church has. But if you've been here 20 years and you're not connected, I'm sorry, you got to own some of that. You got to own it. There's opportunities, and one of those keen opportunities we've put together as a church is the community group on Sunday night. The primary focus of the Sunday night gathering is fellowship. It's for you to get to know other people and to be known by other people. And if you're not taking advantage of that, then you kind of forfeit the opportunity to complain about it, right? I know none of you are doing that. Most of you are engaged in these groups. You understand the benefit. I've seen it happen over and over again. Participate in regular church discipleship classes. What goes on before we have worship on Sunday mornings. Great, great opportunity. And the way the whole thing is set up, it's set up to mix the salad regularly, right? Changing of the guard every quarter, you get the chance to go into a class with maybe new people, different people that you don't know. Again, fellowship is there. It's a part of it. And you get to sit under different teachers and appreciate the teaching talents and abilities and gifts that God has placed in this congregation. 
It's good. It's good for you. It's good for the church. Participate in regular worship gatherings. Be faithful in attending these worship gatherings. Determine to be a faithful steward of what God has entrusted to you, the resources and gifts in your life. Listen, your heart will not go where your assets don't go. Jesus knew that, right? He spoke about money, your treasures, more than he did about anything else, certainly more than a heaven. Because he knew that if your wallet was saved and being sanctified, then there's a good chance your heart's being saved and sanctified. Because where your heart is, that's where you really are. Doesn't matter what you say. It matters what you love. Give your time to advance ministry and missions. Give your resources. Use your gifts and talents to advance the gospel through the opportunities of this church. We've got a vast, we've got a vast mission field right here. We talk a lot about missions. We're invested in missions, and it's important to go to the ends of the world. But friends, we've got a vast mission field right here outside our front door. We can't, there's no program to reach them. We are the program, right? As you go about your daily life, you're interacting with people in the community. Your paths are crossing and you are the gospel reaching program. There's no secret program that we can adopt as a church that's going to reach our community. That's not the way God put the gospel together. He said, you go and make disciples as you go, as you go. So, cultivate and nurture a white-hot passion for Christ. These things will be the fruits of that in your life. And then the second thing is to let us join our hearts, hands, abilities, devotion to be a gospel-vibrant church. To be a gospel-vibrant church. We've got the right things in place. We're in a good spot. We've been together now as Milton Community Church for a year and a half. We've made a great start. But here's, here's the danger that I see. Here's the danger I see and sense. We've already become complacent. We're comfortable. We like each other. We get along. We enjoy being together. Nothing wrong with that. That's all good. But that's not all there is. Right? We need to prioritize some things. We, we need to prioritize being present together. Your presence is important. Let me, let me tell you how it's important. It's important for each other. You need to see each other here. There's a reason that God has us not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It strengthens the church body when we're here together. It strengthens each of you when you're here together. It draws and appeals to newcomers and guests. You may say, well, you know, hey, we're all on a good, good place. We're going in a good direction. But you underestimate the impact of your presence upon new people when they walk in the door. If they come in and they see lots of holes where, and I'm not talking about this building is, is cavernous. It's always going to have some holes in it, right? I'm talking about when, when the body is not at its full strength, 
and the joy and the fruitfulness is complacent or we've unhitched in some way and we're becoming focused on other things. That translates. People understand that when they come in. They pick up on it quicker than you, you or I do being here week in, week out. So being here, being thrilled and enthused to be here draws and appeals to newcomers and guests. It honors God's instructions for us. He has instructed us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's our covenant promise to one another. We say it once a month when we observe the Lord's Supper. We talk about our promise to assemble together. To gather regularly with our hearts prepared for worship. To come in ready to worship. Because we've been walking with the Lord daily during the week. Coming with godly expectation and joy. Expectation and joy. Or do you come because, well, the pastor said I need to be here, so I'm going to tick this box. That's one way to do it. I prefer you be here because you want to be here, because you see the value in it, the value in being together, the value in being under the word, the value of lifting our voices and worshiping God together, because this is not designed by men, it's designed by God. This is the way he has prescribed that we are to do life in this world until he comes. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love in our lives. You are a great, incredible God that it's very easy for us to take for granted. Lord, as we head into a new year, we, we pray that you would work in our midst in a great and powerful way. Lord, that we would not be uh, content just to be what we were yesterday or what we are today, but that we will continue to strive and desire and thirst, Lord, to be more like Christ than ever before. And that as we give ourselves to this, as we discipline ourselves and, and move in this direction, Lord, having our lives in gear to travel along with you, that you will do great things through this church, that you will reach people in our community with the gospel, and that you will exalt yourself and honor yourself through us and by us in all things. Lord, I thank you for each person here. What an incredible assembly of people that you have put together. And it's such a joy. I thank you for that joy and for that unity that you've given us and for the Spirit of God that resides in all of us. Lord, let us not become complacent or comfortable, even as good as things are, but that we would be uh, hungry and desiring, Lord, for you to exalt and glorify yourself in an even greater fashion in the days to come. For the sake of our community, Lord, for the sake of our broken world, and for your glory and for your honor. Well, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.